Good morning. I'd like to ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud. Uh, but just think to yourself in your own mind, if you were in imminent physical danger, do you know what you would do? If you thought that somebody wanted to hurt you, that at any moment you could be in harm's way, do you know what you would try to do about it? A lot of people might think about going to the police. That's one of the places that my mind would go to pretty quickly. They would file a police report, maybe get some advice from those professionals on how to respond. And the police might look into it. They probably wouldn't station an officer outside your house unless it was a very serious situation. But on the other hand, if you have a lot of money, you might consider muscle for hire. You might try to hire a bodyguard, someone to be around at all times to protect you from whoever's threatening you. That could be extremely expensive and it's still no sure guarantee that you would be really genuinely safe. After all, it's just a single individual. There is someone in our country who is so important that he is given a level of protection that the rest of us probably can't even fathom with our minds. On any given day, 30 special agents of the Secret Service follow the President of the United States around wherever he goes. And their entire focus and attention is dedicated to one thing, protecting that man. They're intimidating, they're competent, they're numerous, they seem stealthy, and yet for all that, under their vigilant care, since they began guarding the president in 1902, Theodore Roosevelt was shot in 1912. President Ronald Reagan was shot in 1983. And President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. As thorough and as extensive as their training is and as dedicated as their attention and their efforts are, they are not a perfect protection against the dangers that face our president. Is there such a thing as perfect protection? Is there any truly reliable, unfailing, certain protection against whoever or whatever might threaten us? Our passage this morning is Psalm 91. And the answer of this psalm to that very question is pretty straightforward. Yes. Spoiler alert, yes. There is a perfect protection 
And it's available to us right now against anything, absolutely anything, that might befall us. So if you would, please open up your Bibles to Psalm 91. On the Black Pew Bible on the bottom of the seat in front of you, it's on page 497. Please turn there and and read with me about this perfect protection that's available to you and me. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. This is God's word for each of us this morning. (coughs) Would you please join me in going to the Lord in prayer that he would apply this word to our hearts and to our lives. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you 
because you are our only hope. We come to you because of your great promises. Lord, you have told us that you would be with us. And we pray that you would be with us right now. This very morning, here in this place, we pray that your spirit would be among us and that you would be working in our minds to understand what you have said and in our hearts to receive it with joy and thanksgiving. Father, do your work in us, please, according to your great mercy. We ask it in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, in looking at this psalm, it becomes fairly obvious that the author wants to be very clear about his message. Not a lot of twists and turns, complicated sayings. The first verse sets the tone and theme for everything else that the psalmist wants to say throughout the rest of the psalm. Verse 1 reads, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And then the psalmist spends the next 15 verses fleshing out exactly what that means. What it means to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. What it means to have the powerful protection of the Almighty One. More than this, the psalmist explains not only who will be his protection, but what he will be protected from, how the Lord will protect him, and why the Lord will protect him. Now, it's worth asking, who's this author? Who's this guy who wants to tell us all of these things? What do we know about him or about his circumstances? Those might be helpful in understanding what the Lord wants to say to us. Many times at the beginning of a psalm, the writer of that psalm, the psalmist, or the editor who compiled it, includes a heading up at the top with the name of the psalmist, some personal details about the situation he's in, or even the name of the melody or tune that he wants to be sung with the psalm. Sometimes the psalm is listed clearly as a psalm of David, but other psalms are attributed to Moses, to Solomon, to Asaph, to the sons of Korah, and other writers as well. As far as more detail or circumstances in those headings, Psalm 51 states that that psalm, Psalm 51, was written when Nathan the prophet went to David after he had gone into Bathsheba. The heading of Psalm 57 claims that it speaks about the time when David fled from Saul and hid in a cave. You may remember this weird story about cutting off the corner of robe. Those psalms give you some details, some kind of information about the author, the circumstances, or the purpose of the psalm. But our psalm, Psalm 91, does not. A vast majority of the psalms 
116 out of 150 psalms include some kind of heading. Psalm 91 gives us nothing. No indication of what difficult circumstance the author may have been experiencing. No idea who he was or what he was writing about in particular. And it may seem odd. But frankly, I wonder if it was an intentional choice. I wonder whether the psalmist knew that these words were true regardless of the circumstances of who was saying them or what they were saying them about. I think he knew that this psalm and its message would be relevant to everyone in Israel, whether they had the intense struggles and complex difficulties of a king on his throne. On the one hand, or whether they faced the average, everyday difficulties of peasants and farmers living in small, dusty towns. Because frankly, the difficulties in this psalm described range just as widely. These words were intended to be comfort in our small annoyances and in our greatest fears. So let's take a close look at this psalm and the circumstances described in it, not above it, but in it, to see what we can learn about this author and the circumstances he might have been facing, but frankly, more so so that we might learn how it can relate to the circumstances we find ourselves in and the nature of the promises that it offers us. So as we listen to the words of this psalm, listen also for the good news that it has to offer each of us in our daily difficulties. So let's take a look at the kinds of difficulties listed in this psalm. The first two difficulties are found in verse 3. It reads, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. What's a fowler? It's a bird hunter. And he sometimes catches his birds with nets, other times with little traps, similar to the ones that my son learned to make yesterday. And if you think about it, it's a somewhat vicious image. Imagine that you're a little bird, sparrow, and a bird hunter is planning his attack against you. He's thinking about how to catch you. He wants to perhaps kill you, sell you, eat you. I don't know. It's a graphic depiction of a bad situation, of violence. But the second thing, after the snare of the fowler, is a completely different type of image. There's no aggressive violence. There's no other person trying to hunt you down. 
Instead, the psalmist depicts a deadly pestilence. Now, the word pestilence is one of those English words that you're familiar with since you read Shakespeare or the King James Bible. But in modern conversation, it's not a common word. My wife and I debated what it meant before we looked it up in the dictionary. Neither of us was really on point. So I'll just say, if you look it up, the word pestilence means a contagious or infectious epidemic disease that is devastating. I think that's fairly relevant. Similarly, to verse 3, verse 10 speaks about the danger of plague in the tents of the people of God. These are serious troubles, but frankly, they are very different from the picture of the snare of a fowler. But it doesn't stop there. The next four threats listed are in verses 5 and 6. And they are different as well. And they are given in rapid succession. These verses describe four different troubles. The psalmist writes in verse 5, You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. The interesting thing about that first one, the terror of the night, is that it's radically different than all the other kinds of difficulties mentioned so far. It reminds us that some of the fears and difficulties that we experience are not found in our circumstances at all. They're found in the ways that our minds and our hearts react to the things that we dread. And honestly, while many of the things that give us difficulty are real, I think we all recognize that some of the things that cause us dread are not. And these verses also remind us that our troubles come at us all the time, that they can come at us day and night. But then the psalmist continues and makes it even more extreme. In verse 7, he points out that some of our problems don't just threaten us individually, but they actually can have a huge impact on the lives of whole communities and regions of people around us. The psalmist imagines a far-reaching, widespread difficulty when he says, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. To an ancient Israelite, that's just more than a dozen large towns nearby. We're talking about the decimation of a whole area of the people of God. But then again, in verse 10, he switches it up. No longer talking about widespread, catastrophic problems, 
he backs it off. In verse 10, he goes on to mention threats that might not have any great impact at all on communities or even on an individual. The psalmist promises that no evil shall be allowed to befall you. That could mean catastrophic, terrible events, but it can also mean really small events, things that are irritating or annoying. When he says no evil, that can mean a lot of different things. These troubles that the psalmist describes can be massive or small. They can happen day or night. They can be personal. They can be impersonal. And he wants you to know that the Lord is concerned with all of these. He even goes so far as to claim in verse 12 that the Lord cares when we stub our toes on a rock. Earlier, we marked out Luke 21 that says that the Lord notes any hair that will fall from our heads. The Lord is absolutely concerned with huge troubles, but he's also concerned with common ones, even seemingly insignificant ones. The Lord is paying attention to all of it, every bit of it. And then in verse 13, he continues on, as if it hadn't been enough, as if he hadn't explained all the different kinds of circumstances that might trouble you and me. He goes on to discuss the dangers of the natural world in the forms of lions and poisonous snakes, some of the fiercest and most dangerous perils that the created world has to offer. Treading on a lion seems perilous. So do adders. And so we take from this picture that the psalmist presents over and over and over, we see this repetition. And whenever we see repetition in Scripture, we recognize that an author is hammering on a given idea because he's trying to emphasize it. This first idea that's emphasized in this particular psalm is God is concerned with trouble. Any kind of trouble you may be facing. Anything. Everything. All of it. Whether it's big or small, whether it's human or bacterial, whether it's deadly or merely an inconvenience, widespread in its impact or limited to your own heart and mind. There's no danger that you experience, no threat to your well-being that God doesn't care about. And he is able to protect you from any of it and all of it. It makes me think about the difficulties that I'm facing right now. What difficulties are you facing? Are they big ones? Do they seem overwhelming? Are they so stressful that you have a hard time just thinking about them? 
Are they more mundane? Are you struggling with interpersonal conflict? Someone who seems like he's aggressively attacking you in some way or another? Are you dealing with disease? Do you have uncertainties about your future? Or maybe you struggle with persistent fears in your own heart and mind that just won't seem to go away. Or maybe it's not anything that you can actually even put your finger on. Maybe it's not anything you can enunciate to yourself. Maybe it's just the terror of the night. Have you ever experienced terror in the middle of the night? Like the psalmist describes in verse 5. The main idea, the first point that this psalmist wants to make to each of us is this. There is no danger from the greatest to the smallest, no difficulty or trouble that the Lord can't protect you from. But throughout this psalm, there's a second idea that we want to draw in as well, that the psalmist draws in over and over and over again as well. Not only does the psalmist describe the great number and kinds of troubles that we might find ourselves in, but he also repeatedly, again and again, offers a great number of promises that the Lord wants to offer his people when we're in those troubles. And this is our second main idea. Not only is God able to protect us from any and every trouble, but God also promises his people his own perfect protection in any and every trouble. God promises his people his own perfect protection in their trouble. The simple fact that God can protect us from trouble, that he is the almighty, that he has the power and the ability to protect us, is no comfort by itself. The most skilled lifeguard in the world is no help to anybody if he's not willing to jump in the water and help you out when you're drowning. But our God is both. He is able to help anyone in any trouble. And he commits himself to be the help that we need in any trouble. And he goes out of his way to repeat again and again this assurance. Not just that he can be there for us, but that he will be there for us. The psalmist loves that word, will. Over the course of 16 verses in this psalm, 16 verses, the psalmist talks about what will happen, what God will do, 18 times. And these promises fall in two basic categories. The Lord promises to protect his people from harm on the one hand, and the Lord promises to graciously bless his people on the other. For each one of the troubles we've just talked about, the Lord promises his protection. The Lord will guard his people. The Lord will protect his people. He will be for them a refuge and deliver them. He will bear them up when they're in danger 
and rescue them when they're in trouble. And the psalmist says that the Lord will show his people, his salvation from all of these circumstances and trials. The psalmist even goes so far as to use intimate and nurturing language in his description of God's protection. In verse 4, the psalmist says, He will cover you with his pinions, with the, the tips of his wing, like a mother bird. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. Jesus says of Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother bird, but you were unwilling. God is willing. What close and tender affection God shows in this psalm. But even more, in verse 7 through 10, the psalmist asserts that these dangers won't even get close to the person that God protects. He says, 1,000 may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. He doesn't say that it will not strike you. He doesn't say it will be a narrow miss. He says, it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. And then he, natu- he, he brings it up another notch as well. The psalmist holds forth God's promise not just to protect them or keep them far from danger. He holds forth God's promise to keep them even from the fear of danger that trouble so easily produces in our heart. Verses 5 to 6 state, You will not fear. You will not fear the terror of the night the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. It would be a lovely blessing that none of those things would land on you. It would be even a greater blessing that none of them will come near you. But the Lord offers you not just protection for your body, but protection for your heart that these things won't be a fear to you as you look to him for your protection. The Lord loves to protect his people, not only from harm or from proximity to harm, but even to protect them from the fear of harm. These are precious promises that should strengthen the faith and the joy and the hope of all who place their hope in the Lord. But is this psalm really asserting that God will never let us stub our toes? I mean, that seems kind of intense, right? God will never let you have any evil in your life? Is that, is that really what 
we're going to say that the psalmist was trying to assert here? Doesn't seem possible. Is God saying that he will never let us come down with a contagious disease? I think we all know that's not the intention of the author or of the Lord in this psalm. And it becomes abundantly clear that that's not what the Lord means when that very lie is used in the pages of Scripture against God himself. In Luke 4, Luke 4 describes a time when Satan took the words of Psalm 91 and twisted them and misused them to tempt Jesus to sin. He's a liar, and lying is his natural language, and he took that lie, that God does not want you to stub your toe, and brought it to Christ to tempt him to sin. Luke 4 19 through, sorry, Luke 4, 9 through 13 says, And he, Satan, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And... On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan tries to get Jesus to believe that those who have God's favor will be kept from any harm whatsoever. Gladly, Jesus not only knew the twisting of Psalm 91 in the mouth of the deceiver, he knew a longer picture, a bigger picture of what was coming for him. He knew not to believe that distortion. He knows that harm and difficulty are absolutely crucial to his mission on earth. And so he replies to Satan, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What is that opportune time? When is the next time that Satan and Jesus meet in Scripture? It's later in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 22. When Satan entered Judas Iscariot, and ate the Passover meal with Jesus and his disciples. Shortly before Jesus' last moments with his disciples, before his torture, before his crucifixion, before his death, before Jesus himself warns his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
So if this is not a promise that we will experience only good things in this world, what is being promised? Verse 16 in Psalm 91 records God's promise of long life to his people. Verse 16 says, With long life I will satisfy him. Jesus died around the age of 33. That feels young. And many who faithfully serve the Lord die even younger. So is this psalm lying to us? How are we supposed to understand these promises? I want to tell you a story. It's a true story. Have you ever heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? Some of you seem to. You seem to be nodding your heads a little bit. It's a, it's a rather famous study, actually, a psychological study conducted in 1972 on the ability of children engaged uh, to engage in delayed gratification. So imagine... Psychologists in, I don't know if they were in lab coats, I kind of imagined them in lab coats in my head, so I'm just going to go with it. Imagine them in a room with a kid, maybe four, five, six years old. In this experiment, the child, maybe five years old, is placed in a room at a table with a marshmallow on the table and told, you can eat this marshmallow right now. But if you wait while I go away, and if you can wait until I get back, you can have two marshmallows. So the researcher leaves the room for a little while, and they watch the child. And to hear these descriptions of these kids is just hilarious. What the researchers found was that the visible presence of the treat right in front of the child produced a kind of torture. The kids would just squirm. They would hide their heads. They wouldn't look at it. They would talk to themselves. Some of the kids started praying up to the sky for help. (laughs) Exactly, that's what they said. Do not eat the marshmallow. And it's a funny set. I mean, you can go look it up. It's, it's a really interesting set of results. Um, little kids writhing in their inability to delay their own gratification. Uh, it turns out that the kids who were able to delay gratification, the ones who were able to decide, I'm not going to eat this marshmallow. I'm not going to take what's right here and I want it. They were able to wait 15 minutes till the researcher came back. Well, there's, there's lots of things that they know about these kids, but they did a checkup on them 20 years later, and the kids who could delay gratification had better SAT scores, they had better mental health, they had better academic performance, and the list goes on. It's really wild. 
Have you ever felt like one of those little kids? Like there's a marshmallow just right there begging you to eat it? Have you ever found it difficult to maintain a long-term perspective on what would be best when something that you want is just right in front of you? I bring up this example in part because Jesus had that opportunity. Jesus tells Pontius Pilate, if I wanted to, I could bring down legions of angels who would give me life, long life even. But Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. In addition, the passage of Scripture that Paul read for us this morning, Romans 8, the Apostle Paul expresses the same idea when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And because of that glory, Paul was able to endure difficulties, torture, rejection, stoning, and much, much more for the kingdom of Christ. Both of these men knew that God's promise of long life to his people was more. And both of them knew they wanted the life that would never end. Does God care when you stub your toe? Does he care when you don't get what you want? Does he care about the evils that befall you now, the physical difficulties you may have? Absolutely. It is not the case that God only cares about your spiritual well-being. but you will have trouble in this world. This is why Paul continues after that passage in Romans 8 to offer another promise to God's people. He says in Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not that all things are good, not that you'll never have difficulty, but that it will be good. God will work it together for good for you if you love him. Paul knew it. Jesus knew it. And this psalmist wants us to know it as well. So when verse 16 of Psalm 91 holds out the offer of a long and satisfying life, it's not talking about living into your hundreds. It's talking about living into your hundred thousands or your hundred millions. That is the kind of satisfying long life that is so beyond am I going to make it to my hundredth birthday. This psalm wants you to know there's no trouble that the Lord can't protect you from and this psalm wants you to know that God promises perfect protection in any and every trouble. Not 
from any and every trouble, but God promises perfect perfection, perfect protection in every trouble and through every trouble. One last thing that the psalmist emphasizes that I want to bring to our minds this morning. The psalmist describes the kind of people who get to take advantage of these great and precious promises. Because it's not everybody. Verse 2 makes it very clear that these people trust the Lord to be their protection. Verse 2 says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. In verses 14 to 16, we see the perspective of the speaker in the psalm switch from the psalmist on the one hand to the Lord on the other. And in the voice of the Lord, we see three truths about who God is making these promises to. Verses 14 to 16 read, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The people who receive this blessing of perfect protection from the Lord, they know his name, they put their trust in him, they call on him in trouble, and they hold fast to him in love. Those are the people that the Lord protects in this special way. And more than that, the psalmist says, it is because we hold fast to him in love that he delivers us. It is because we know his name. We know him personally and deeply that the Lord is glad to grant his people his perfect provision. Against their worst fears, against their most overwhelming problems, against their darkest difficulties. What is our most overwhelming problem? What is our darkest difficulty? We're not talking about disease or depression or war or famine or death. The Lord has made it very clear in Scripture that the worst trouble that any of us have is our sin. The rebellious response of our natural hearts toward God himself. We have no chance of standing up against that difficulty on our own. But God wants to be our refuge. He is glad to grant to every one of us his perfect provision for sin. 
the atoning death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. In the book of Exodus, God sent ten plagues of judgment against the sin of Egypt. And in the final plague, the tenth plague, he judged Egypt with death in every Egyptian home as a punishment for their rebellion against him. But God made a provision for his people. God's provision for his people was the blood of a lamb. They were to put it on their home. It was to surround them and make that home for them a refuge and a protection and a fortress against the incoming wrath and judgment of God against mankind. The picture of Passover fills Psalm 91. That blood, that covering for sin is our refuge from destruction. And now in Christ, his blood, the blood of the perfect, eternal, spotless lamb, has become God's perfect protection from his righteous judgment against sin. And so, if you are here today and you have never called out to God for his protection, if you've never put your trust in Christ by faith, if you're not holding fast to him in love, you are not under God's perfect protection against judgment. And I want to encourage you, put your trust in Christ, in the provision that God gives for you and me and every one of us. Call out to him by faith and cling to him in love for your safety. But if you're here and you have done this, if you have placed your trust in Christ... This psalm wants you to do the exact same thing. This psalm wants you to call to the very same response, to call on the name of the Lord. This is not something we do once and never again. It is a continuous trust. It is a continuous calling. It is a continuous clinging to the Lord in love. And it gets hard. It gets hard when trouble and difficulty and oppression come on us and we are not strong enough for it. And that's why we need to call to him. When we face difficulty, when the money's kind of running out and things are tight at home and you don't know what to do, or when you're being attacked by someone and you don't know why, Or when your enemy is your very own sin that you hate in yourself and you just don't know how to put it to death. This psalm wants to remind all of us 
to put our trust in Christ, to call out to him, to cling to him in love. And so I want to encourage all of us to take the words of this psalm to heart. It doesn't matter how small or insignificant your difficulty may seem, either to you or to the people around you, God sees it and God cares about it. And it doesn't matter how huge your difficulty, how complicated your trouble is, or how deadly it might be. There is absolutely no difficulty that poses any difficulty for the Lord. There is nothing that he can't save you from. He has given us great and precious promises. To be our firm foundation, our perfect protection from any and every evil that we might meet. And he calls us to respond to this offer in faith with calm assurance holding fast to him in love. And he has already told us he is not going to take us out of every trouble that we encounter, but he absolutely will be with you and me in each trouble through each trouble until we all land safe on the other side. So let's take him at his word and look to him as our perfect protection and our great blessing. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord God, thank you for giving us these promises. These promises that none of us deserved in our rebellion. These promises that we can't even provide for ourselves. Thank you for granting them by your mercy and grace. Thank you for reminding us that we need to cry out to you, hold on to you, and trust you with our whole hearts. We pray that we would not look to any other thing for our safety and our well-being, that we would not rely on anything other than your goodwill toward us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the perfect gift of protection in the blood, in the death and resurrection and new life of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would fill our hearts with that love for you and that you would be our blessing. We ask it by your Holy Spirit at work among us in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.